Where are we? Uh, uh, I think that's the Dominican Republic. Okay. <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is uh, Jonah Goldberg talking to you from outside the Dominican Republic. I am in. I'm on the National Review cruise. I am suffering from jet lag and a debilitating head cold, so I feel like a million Venezuelan bolivars. And um, I have with me my um, uh, my trusted uh, sound engineer and colleague from National Review, Charlie Cook. Charlie, welcome aboard. Hello. Yeah, you I should say, be welcome aboard. You should be welcoming me aboard. I just got here. You're about to disembark. So we're we're trying out this new exciting technology in his stateroom. We've asked all the supermodels to stay quiet. And um, well, they're uh, over in the other wing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but they keep traipsing by suggestively. Various really, states of undress. Yeah, it really is distracting. That reminds me. I once was traveling with my um, wife, and we were flying. I used miles to fly business class on BA, and they had one of those. Um, you know, like the 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 Wall Street Journal puts out like a couple times a year that incredibly thick, super glossy, high end magazine for really expensive like readers, really rich readers. It was like the Financial Times' version of this, and I'm looking at an ad in it that you can rent a yacht for starting at just 500,000 pounds a week, and it's got a picture of one dude like sunbathing on the center of the deck with like 12 um, really, really hot women in bikinis lying around, and my wife, who's not vulgar at all, she looks at that, and she's just like, oh my God, a situation like that, if you're one of those prostitutes, you're just incredibly relieved when the guy says he just wants to have sex with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're out in the middle of international waters, who knows what's going on. Anyway, uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Donors Trust. We'll hear more about Donors Trust in a little bit. So, Charles, bring me up to date. How's the cruise been going? It's good. Yeah. It's good. I've had very nice tables. I've met some interesting people. It's also nice because I think about half the people on this cruise are from Florida. Yeah. So we just had an election in Florida. There's so much to talk about there. Yeah. Um, a couple guys last night told me that they were single-handedly responsible for DeSantis and... Uh, um, Why did they vote 30,000 times? <laughs> <laughs> they talked about how they rallied the panhandle to vote overwhelmingly or something. I was like, I'm sure uh, they worked very hard. They were very proud of it. Because, so. But it's never happened before that the panhandle voted Republican. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to fact-check in our cruisers. We're, they're all... No, no, no. I'm, no. I'm only teasing. I'm only teasing. Although it was more difficult in the panhandle this year because it was hit by a hurricane. Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. never happens either. Um, right. <laughs> but, it, but it didn't hit... I mean, n- not that you should think about hurricanes like this but you have to win as an election it sure. didn't hit democratic areas it, it, yeah. it, apart from Tallahassee a little bit uh, it hit Republican areas and that was one of the worries was yeah. it will it will diminish Republican turnout in, and elections that are always incredibly close yeah yeah um, so for listeners who don't know Charlie is on the editors podcast and the newly rev- somewhat newly revived Mad Dogs and Englishmen podcast you're the editor of NationalReview.com is how we say it NationalReview.com is how we okay, say it. Okay, yeah. So in, 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 in spirit, he is sort of my, uh, the successor of the much more impressive operation, which I started as National Review Online with several spools of string, some duct tape, and uh, and at least one live chicken. And uh, he is also our resident. Is it fair to say that you're our resident roundhead? N- yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Sorry, it took me a moment to get back into the British context there. I was, where is this going? Uh, yes, no, I, I would definitely be a roundhead. Yeah. So, roundheads, for those who don't know, are the, the in the British, in the English, I say English Civil War, they were the rabid partisans, or as Charlie would say, partisans 
of uh, parliamentary democracy and against the absolute divine right of kings and all the rest. That- yeah, that, the, the problem I have with this is is uh, I would have probably been dissatisfied by the end of the civil war with both sides, although I would have always been in favor of parliament. Because, because you I, wanted more purges? Um, no, because I think that the new model army started to take on a proto-fascistic yeah. quality, and Cromwell was not my idea of <laughs> a solid replacement for right. you know, a, a, an absolute monarch. Um, and so what, what you really want is neither uh-huh. Charles nor... Uh, and, and, I, and that's real heresy from me, because I'm from Huntingdon originally, just outside Cambridge, which is where Cromwell was from. Uh-huh. Um, you know, every, every other square is Cromwell this, Cromwell that. Um, is I there any local pride? I mean, other yeah, than the name yeah, of the thing? Sure, like, you sure. talk to a normal guy at a pub, they're like proud that they were from where Cromwell was Oh, I, I think that might be a weird conversation to start at a pub. I think I'd get the <laughs> same looks I, I, I get when I, when I talk about college football in New York. But uh-huh. um, he... Uh, he, he's certainly a local figure, yeah. yeah. I mean, but but I think people don't know the bad stuff. I mean, I genuinely think that he, because... He was a dictator, or wanted to be a dictator. He was, and he wanted to hand power to his son, but I mean, he also ruthlessly crushed the Irish. Or, I mean, we joke yeah. about the Irish in England, but he, he did. Uh, he was this horrendous Puritan, he sort of yeah. banned Christmas, and he yeah. didn't like acting. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, th- this, was, uh, this was not the, the modern hero yeah. we deserve. So they're, they're, I wouldn't, as you as as you know, and as close listeners of this podcast know, there was no plan going into this, much like what turned out to be the fact about the Cylons and Battlestar Galactica, despite them saying there was a plan. Anyway, but this reminds me, you I remember your review of uh, our friend Daniel Hanan's book um, on what was it? How the English English invented liberty? Is yeah, that what it's called, yeah. right? And I, would, I think it's fair to say we're both of a. You're probably more intensely a Whig than I am, but we're of both Whiggish tendencies, right? Um, yeah. And I'm also something of a leveller. Uh, People think I'm this aristocrat. I'm really not. I don't like any titles. I don't like... Right. For example, today is a national day of mourning for George H.W. Bush, and I'm appalled by this. Not because I don't like George H.W. Bush. I'm sure I would have voted for him. He was a very good man by all accounts, and I admire him in many ways. Yeah. But we've closed the stock market, a lot of universities, the postal service... Yeah. The House says we're not going to do anything for a week out of respect to the president. Why? Yeah. He's not a king. He's yeah. not a pope. He didn't found the country or save the country. He didn't write the Constitution. He's a public employee. Right. It seems to me this is inverting. And I feel like this across the whole board. I hate it when people come to NR and they insist upon being called senator or governor when they're not those things and haven't been for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like the deferential way we treat people in politics and so on. So, yes, I would say I'm a Whig, but I'd also say I'm more on the leveller side of it. than. Well, so the reason I bring this up is because we're talking about Cromwell. The problem I have with because you, you, you have a British accent it'll just sound better why don't you explain what Whiggish or Whig history is for a second to set me up for the point I want to make well there's a difference between being a Whig and Whig history I know there is yeah. I know there is but, yeah. uh, but, but they get used a lot in the same sentences so well Whig history is the idea that everything always gets better right and that we're destined for movement into sunlit uplands and and I find it very dangerous because I think that it creates this the sort of paradox. If it's guaranteed, then you can kill people to get there. Right. And so or you, you can just do nothing. Or you can do nothing and, and, right. and it will get there anyway. So I, I, I'm certainly not a Whig historian, but I would say I'm more of a, a Whig in that I think power should lie in parliaments and not in monarchs. Right. Uh, and I think that ultimately society should be set up 
upon the consent of the governed, although that in and of itself is not an absolute, in that you need to restrain those societies as well. Right. Um, I'm going to let you ask your question, because otherwise okay. I'll start going off on Yeah, that. so, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you made the distinction, because, I mean, that's a big point in my book, is that there's no, I'm not a believer in teleology, I'm not a believer that, that anything is determined, right? And so, my problem with, and I do think, it'll get too deep in the weeds to go too deep on this point, but I think there's a reason why Whig history sort of comes from Whiggish people. <laughs> um, the idea that freedom always wins is yeah. sort of a part of the mindset of a lot of Whigs. That's you not know? true. And it's not, absolutely not true. Um, and the thing I always, uh, not always, but ever since I was working on this stuff for the book, think about it is, you know, the, the, the idea that England was destined to be this free country, the gunpowder plot, could very easily have worked, and we would think of the entire, you know, few, last few centuries of England as a very different yeah. place. And we would tell stories about how, you know, you know, the central government used to have this monarch and all of these kinds of things. And and it shows you just sort of. I mean, that was my problem with the Hanan book is that it was there was a certain amount of. And I really liked Daniel, and I liked the book, and I learned a lot from it. But there was a certain amount of inevitability to the story of freedom and all of that, and and obviously that's something that I sort of push back on. Um, but now I'm that cold medicine starting to kick in. Now I can't remember the point I was trying to get to. Um, This moment of silence is brought to you by <laughs> Jonah's dementia. Um, it'll come back to me at a weird moment. Um, let's go back to the death of George H. W. Bush for a second. Um, Actually, just before we do that, uh-huh. right, so, so the the English Civil War is very often held up as as the sort of inflection point. But I think that the moment that modern Anglo-American liberals, in my sense of the word, should and have t- traditionally celebrated is a glorious revolution. Yeah. That's the moment. That, because, firstly, the, the, the Civil War failed in one sense. I mean, they restored the monarchy. Right. The person who replaced the monarchy, as I've said, was not great. Right. But the Glorious Revolution worked. And if you, if you were to have asked the colonists in America, what do you think is the correct settlement? They would have said that. Right. And if, this, it wasn't just Burke. The, the statesmen in the late 18th century in the English Parliament thought that they had arrived at a perfect arrangement with the Glorious Revolution. That's what they wanted to preserve. Um, that's in some part why you get so much resistance in the, into the 19th century uh, against electoral reform, because they're worried it will upset that right. apple cart. Um, so, we, I mean, we do have a moment. I think, I think one of the reasons that you get this Whiggish view of it is that the American conception of British liberty, which is which was codified into the Declaration and into the Constitution, and all those missives sent to England in the late 18th century, is built on a very real understanding of the Glorious Revolution, but also on a myth. And that myth is that back somewhere in the mists of time, there was this free England. Right. right. And that what the uh, people who came after that period were charged with doing was restoring it. Right. <laughs> and so you get this this discussion of Magna Carta in in <coughs> British colonial America that misstates what Magna Carta did for whom it was written. Right. Whom it bound. Right. And also And we also add a the to it in America. You do. And yeah. also h- holds up these these sort of precepts 
as if they came out of the water in England、right. rather than were fought for with a lot of blood and misery and also a lot of trial and error over centuries. I mean, if you cannot really look at Magna Carta and then look at the Succeeding three hundred centuries, and so they fixed it. <laughs> right? No, exactly. That's right. And and the thing about the Magna, sorry, I will say the Magna Carta,、okay. meaning no offense. There were like a couple of them. There were a couple different versions of them. Sure. There's a big section about how to treat the Jews and about how much to pay for like pork imports. I mean, it's not this magisterial、right. document, and that that sort of. So it's funny. I was rereading some Madison stuff for the,、uh, this panel I had to do. Awful panel in some ways. It was.、Uh, The greatest collection of Goldbergs outside of a、um, orthodontist convention. It was me, Jeff Goldberg, and Michelle Goldberg. Oh wow!、And, uh, I like Jeff. I mean, I have my problems with Jeff, obviously. You know,、uh, but Michelle Goldberg and I will never see eye to eye on. I、much. like the way you did that. You said it was with me and Jeff Goldberg and Michelle. And I like Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know,、uh, the Straussians believe in significant silences. So、um, the when you when you read like I was rereading Federalist Ten and. You know, and I can't remember what the name of the document was, but this other thing that Jay Cost told me I had to read when I was on the Acela. And what comes through is this point that you're making about English history, right? So, and the reason why the, I originally want to call my book "The Tribe of Liberty" is that our conception of what liberty is really comes out of just the weirdness of English people, yes,、yeah, right? right. Just, the English people, and I don't mean that in a negative way, no, 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 yeah,、right. but they were just. They're weird. They had they had just enough of their sort of pagan Viking Wiccan culture,、um, or Wiccan culture, I should say, and、um, and you know the whole Fourth Amendment has this long tail that comes out of just the fact that no one could come into my hut without my permission, right? right. And and so when Madison is trying to figure out how to、um, design a new political system, it's basically trying to recreate the natural ecosystem that you guys stumbled into、yeah. without a king. Right, because we just had this war. We're not gonna. We can't have a king. We can't have nobles. But what we want is this really yeasty ecosystem of different institutions, constantly checking each other. Right, and、um, and I think it's the proper way, sort of the Burkean English garden way of thinking about it. It is an ecosystem where you have enough institutions that every institution understands that the rules of the game have to be such that you're willing to concede that the other side may win around. Um, and that's okay. Yeah. And yeah. it seems to me that today the problem we have in our culture is we have so few competing institutions, and none of them are staying in their lane and doing what they're supposed to do. That that's why our politics seems zero sum. Is, is that the runaway administrative state, the runaway government, the runaway courts? You and the fact that we're basically voting as if we live in a parliamentary system now, where we vote for parties instead of positions or people or anything else. It feels. I understand things are going great in a lot of different ways. It feels more precarious to me than than I think a lot of people feel. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the weird side effects of of the the lack of、uh, sort of institutional diversity and institutional discipline is the expectation that everyone, regardless of what they're supposed to do, should comment on everything. And I I、right. find this fascinating as regards, say, Twitter. So I don't write about foreign policy. Yeah, I never have. If you look back through my seven years at National Review, except tangentially, I've never written about foreign policy. I don't know enough about it. It's、yeah. not my strong suit. I don't think of all the people in America, people need to hear from me on this topic.、Uh, I will write if the question is, 
should Congress right, right, right. decide whether we go to war, uh, or if it's a question of presidential power. But I'm not going to write whatever my own views uh, on on the topic per se. Um, and yet I get these strange emails or tweets saying, well, you've been very silent on what's happened in Ukraine, as yeah, if yeah. I'm supposed to put out a statement. You know, yeah. Mr. Cook uh, would like to issue a statement on the situation in Ukraine. Well, why? Right. That's not my job. It's not what I'm known for. It's not what I'm paid to do. Right. Uh, and also, I mean, I'm on Twitter, so I'll write what I damn well like. Um, and, but I think that is part of the same instinct that has led the ACLU to have to comment on you know, healthcare policy that has led th- these bizarre tweets you see from Planned Parenthood where they say, you know, um, uh, net neutrality is reproductive justice. Or, right, know, right, right, right. The gold standard is reproductive justice. And has led the NRA in some ways to get involved in cultural battles that it shouldn't be, right. shouldn't be touching. Whereas in, in a more disciplined uh, system of little platoons you would just have those officers saying, we don't do that. That's not what we do here. You, know, you don't go to your doctor and ask him to comment on the price of grapefruits. Right. But it's, and it works the other way, too, where movie stars, rock stars are expected to opine on every issue of the day, and it becomes problematic. Taylor Swift. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have an opinion on everything. And to me, that is a sign of the, you know, it's sort of like bacteria, gut bacteria. You want a lot of it of different kinds sort of competing with each other. That's how ecosystems thrive with a kind of biodiversity kind of thing. And when you end up, to really mangle a metaphor, when you end up asking sort of tigers to behave like elephants and elephants to behave like tigers and everyone has to be fit this mono, this, this monoculture conception where everyone has to have an opinion on everything and everyone has to be involved in everything and you yeah. can't stay in your lane, that, I think, is much more dangerous to democracy and, to, and, and, and has much deeper roots than anything we talk about Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. But Donald Trump is a symptom of this, right? Sure, I sure. mean, he comes out of this celebrity culture that says, well, because he's famous and he's allegedly good at building buildings, he must have great uh, understanding of trade and foreign policy and all these other things. And because he's famous on TV for The Apprentice and he has followers through that or through professional wrestling... If he's famous enough, then why wouldn't he be president? Because fame is the only thing that really matters. And that, Mm. I I think, is a a huge problem going forward. Again, this is not, I have plenty to criticize Donald Trump about. It is not a criticism of Donald Trump. It's a criticism of what he represents. And that going forward, if, if if celebrity is considered a qualification, we got real problems. And, And this gets to this thing... You, you sort of jokingly said uh, an aside earlier about how Cromwell didn't like actors. Mm. That was the same in the United States and throughout much of the West, going back to the Greeks. I mean, actors were basically hookers, right? And that's how they were seen as sort of cheap people who sold, particularly the women, but also men, they were flouncy and weird and they were, they were sort of one of the contemptible classes. Yeah. And you could, if you did a sort of visitor from Mars or a visitor from, you know, a thousand years ago kind of test, you could probably find some really smart or interesting people who say, my God, do you realize how stupid it was to elevate actors and performers <laughs> to being like de facto aristocrats? You know, because there is a problem with that when you, you know, you, you, you get what you celebrate in right, the culture. Right, and right. celebrating people who are purely performative is kind of a problem. And George H.W. Bush wasn't performative. Right. But he was... He had better character than a lot of the presidents who were, and other politicians who were performative. 
Does that make sense to you, or am I just... Uh, no, I yeah. think that's exactly right. I mean, it, it, it was sort of, I want my president's boring. Right. I, I want to be like Swiss, where they don't even know the president's name is. Sure, I would like... I'd like it... I mean, this, this, is, this is also the product of one's conception of good government, you know, um, and small-R Republican government. That, and, I, and I think it's such a shame that when you say this in 2018, you're looked at as if you're some sort of eccentric or relic. But I want the president to be the head of the executive branch right. in the way that at my local Chick-fil-A, there's a manager. Right. No, I think that's right. That's how I see the executive branch. Now, there are always going to be times when the president is more than that because, firstly there are 330 million people in America. And secondly, the president and foreign policy have always been entangled. And so if there is a war, yes, you're going to get a president who is more prominent. But in a day-to-day basis, I, mean, I, th- I think obviously it's very strange when you see articles saying it's been five days since the attack on this town and Taylor Swift has said nothing. Right, right, right. But it's also odd when, you know, outside of... A nine eleven. It's it's also odd when we expect the president to comment on everything. I mean, talking about staying in your lane. He's right. the head of the executive branch. Most things that happen in America happen locally, and they happen in a state, they happen in a town, they happen within a community of university or whatever. Why do we look to the person who's sort of essentially the head of the bureaucracy? Yeah. <laughs> Why to, to to answer all of these questions for us? Um, and I think I think it's probably a flaw in in human nature at one level, but but it's it's one that we used to try very hard to box in, right? And now we do the opposite. Yeah. So let me let me push back that on, on a little bit, because as you say, you're a leveler, right? It seems to me that you could make the case that since it is part of human nature, right? We want the, the, again. I know you're not taking my bait, but part of my problem with the transactional argument for Donald Trump is, and I think. The transactional argument on its own merits is utterly intellectually defensible. I might have disagreements with it, but it's sure. utterly and it's totally defensible. We're getting the judges, we're getting the tax cuts, look at these accomplishments, blah, 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 blah. I can have arguments about how much credit goes where and all that, but that's fine. The problem is, is that at a national level, in a cultural level, people have a very hard time conceding that they're being led, quote unquote led, by a bad person or by a flawed person. And so we end up lionizing our leaders and making them into mythic things, right? And I think that is part of human nature. And so it seems to me that since you can't get rid of that, the English used to be quite good at figuring out ways of dealing with that reality rather than ignoring it. Because when you ignore it, it manifests itself in unhealthy ways. When you manage it and you manage perceptions in a way where you try to get quote-unquote, leaders to model right behavior, other people model right behavior. When they don't, or when we tell people in this sort of Rousseauian spirit, everyone go listen to your gut, you're your own source of authority, you don't get the libertarian nirvana that I think you crave. You get, instead, people modeling bad behavior and then people copying that bad behavior. Do you think that's... Yeah, I mean, I I don't so much think it would lead to libertarian nirvana, because there's no such thing. I, I, I lean strongly libertarian, but but I'm I'm an anti-utopian. Uh-huh. I think last time I was on your podcast, I said this. That one of the problems libertarians have on, for example, the drug war, is I think that they're right in their diagnosis, and I think that they're right in 
in where they would move federal action. But I think that they are far too keen to say, and then everything will be great. Right. And I don't think it will be. I think it will be marginally better. I think it's a trade-off. But it, it is nevertheless the case that at points in American history, uh, and indeed in colonial history, there was no lionization of a central figure. I mean, right. the, Calvin Coolidge was popular enough to win re-election, but no one said, I think Calvin Coolidge is the best person in the whole world, and I want right. to put pictures of him in my wall. Ironically, he was awesome. No, I know he was. I love him. I love him, but, but, but pre- precisely because That's he right. was so modest. And, and in the late 19th century, there was... Um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt w- was was an aberration in that regard because right. the presidents who came before him were not were not lionized, and in the period of salutary neglect prior to the revolution, uh, Americans conducted their own affairs without revering right. anyone really. Now that that doesn't mean within their own civil society there weren't figures who were revered, and that doesn't mean within history there weren't figures who were revered because there were. George Washington was very sure. famous and very much beloved Lincoln too but it is possible to do that and I don't think you need to to seek a libertarian paradise or the opposite in order to covet that I mean you could have actually quite a large intrusive government without the president being this pope figure no I I agree with that I just uh, my my operative metaphor here was this ecosystem stuff is that when you start Losing these habitats close to home, where pe- that's where people are supposed to define themselves. Yeah, you end up defining yourself in relation to a whole country, which is in America kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean, uh, and and it, it's also led us down some odd paths. And I, I won't do re-rehearse my "This is why we need federalism" speech that I've been giving for years. But during the the midterms, the national focus that citizens who do not work in politics or national journalism exhibited was remarkable to me. And I'll give you some examples of this. Clearly, where I live in Florida, there was a tight race, two tight races. Bill Nelson and Andrew Gillum looked as if they were going to win, but not by very much. Right. And everyone around me in Florida at the state level was desperately trying to work out how to win those races for their candidate. Money, knocking on doors, leaflets, get up this vote, appeal to Cubans, appeal to African Americans, whatever. And yet you log on to Twitter and everything is nationalized. Yeah. And I kept seeing these people saying, I've sent money to better O'Rourke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just sent some more money. I'll chip in. He's going to win. Uh, my, my father-in-law is a Republican. He's voting for better. And I just sent him another, another $10. And I would click on their profile and it would say Miami, Florida, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or 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 Nevada yeah. or Arizona, places where there are competitive close races yeah. and and important races of their own, and they're sending money out of the state somewhere else yeah, where yeah. they don't live, yeah. because they are more invested in a national narrative. Uh, it, it's clear why so many progressives wanted better to win. I understand. I mean, it would, it, would, it would be like if we thought there was going to be some great conservative resurgence and, and there was a chance that California right. would be part of it. Or a conservative would beat Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts. Yeah, you would yeah. just love it. You'd love to be able to say, look, 
X is so unpopular and so destructive for the country that even this person in this state was kicked out. Right. You'd love to be able to do that. So I get it. And also, people really don't like Ted Cruz, which I understand too. Um, but that, to me, is really, really worrying. When you're sending money and effort to a different place because you're more interested in what Rachel Maddow is saying on MSNBC about a race in a place you don't live than you are in what's happening in your, in your community. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's the fundamental... That's a facet of the fundamental problem in the country is that you want, and some of it has to do with globalism, right? I mean, this is a point Charles Murray has made for years that it used to be that you had a lot of vertical and horizontal social integration in in various communities. Where if you, uh, he grew up in Newton, Iowa, where the Maytag factories were, and if you were the head of Maytag, you lived in Newton too, right? Yeah, sure, and, sure. and now you have this thing where if if you're the head of the corporation that owns the corporation that owns the company that's in your town, you may fly in once or twice a year. You don't have buy-in into that system. And I think this is something that conservatives don't deal well enough with, the sort of the, 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 reorgani- the social reorganization of societies so that they don't have elites in their own communities that are modeling behavior for those communities. I remember a friend of mine once was telling me how it's fascinating. In Naples buildings were 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 divided by class in the building so the rich people lived at the top of the building and the poor people lived in the bottom the middle class people were in the mil- middle and there's something really glorious about that right you know because what you want is is you want to see you want upper class people to use a not quite right word for america and lower class people to meet mm. in the grocery store right and all that kind of stuff but instead if everybody thinks they are part of one nationalized class and stratum. They all start looking to the central government right. for their solutions. Well, that's actually one of the paradoxes about about the most enthusiastic Trump supporters is that is that they call themselves nationalists and, and they say America, America, America. But they're also extremely invested in similar populist movements in Italy, right, right, and right. Britain far more in many ways than they are in fights here in America over domestic policy that will affect them and their neighbors, right. So it's sort of a, it's a internationalist uh, nationalism. But on your on your point about Maytag, that's also why the president of Maytag didn't drive a Ferrari. Right. No, exactly I mean, right. This is something I always noticed. I'm from a small town just outside Huntingdon, and it was a farming town. And I we weren't farmers, but we knew a lot of farmers. Um, and some of the farmers around there owned so much land; they were very rich. Yeah. And, and uh, but they could not have driven the Bentley that they could definitely have afforded. Right. Onto the farms, well, obviously it would be impractical. But because the the farm workers would have seen it, right, right. and it would have ruined their relationship with the farm workers. Right. Also, the same restaurants that the farm workers went to, they would go to just because there weren't any others. Right. But when you have sort of Silicon Valley set up, then you really can drive your Ferrari, right, right. and and back to your home, and and no one will no one will notice. Yeah. No. And the Silicon Valley thing is a good point. Is like because. Those people are surrounded by people just like them, and they see no reason why they can't impose their Silicon Valley views on the entire country. I mean, I meet so many of those sort of slightly on the spectrum, you know, uh, Silicon Valley rich people who don't understand that not everybody wants to live just like they do and also can't afford to live just like they do. Well, and also, very often, and I spend a lot of time thinking about tech and, yeah. and, and tinkering and reading 
guides for tinkering and developments and articles about advancements and so forth. Um, so and, did the Unabomber, by the way. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> and he had his own manifesto, too. Uh, and a beard. But I, I think that... Um, I think one of the problems that you can arrive at if you have the mentality that is prevalent in Silicon Valley is that as, as a human being, you are tasked with finding the right answer right. and not with existing within your polity. And so you will, you will hear that they've got better at not saying this out loud, but you will hear Silicon Valley thinkers saying, well, we need to automate truck driving because right. it's far more efficient and cheap. And then we will just give the 5 million people whose jobs that would take away money. Right. Now, I don't want the government to get involved to stop that innovation. I don't. But I think that if, if as a society we believe that the people who are displaced by it are going to be happy just being sent a check every month, right. then we need our heads looking at. But this, this, you know, this guaranteed minimum income idea... Is, is very popular in Silicon Valley because it's an easy way of answering the question, okay, and once all of this has been implemented, right. what happens to the people who were previously working so they don't have to feel guilty about themselves? But that's actually not how human beings behave. Right. I mean, David French talks about this. In, in Tennessee, people who were, um, have been displaced by Obama's energy policy, which I think is a little bit different. I, I think you can actually criticize the government when it actively tries to shut down plants rather right. than... But anyway, the, the answer that was given to many of those people is, well, you've got Medicaid. But that's not how human beings think. Right. Yes, it's true, they do. But people think, well, my father was a minor. I want to work. I want to go home, look at my wife in the eye and provide. So... Yeah, I don't actually know how I got onto this. Yeah, no, no, look, this is something I I struggle with all the time. You know, Charles Murray, a friend of mine, he wrote a book entirely about uh, uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income. And I find the arguments really compelling. And I think Charles is having second thoughts about it, but I don't want to put words in his mouth. For precisely the reasons that you're getting at, which is that people want a sense of meaning and contribution. They want what Arthur Brooks calls earned success. Yeah. And in the era of which is what we're heading into, really good VR, right? Really, really awesome video games with maybe some sex robots thrown in, right? The idea that we already have lots and lots of particularly young men who've just checked out of society to play Call of Duty all the time, right? All of a sudden, if you start paying them so they can afford their, you know, hot pockets and whatnot and, and really commit themselves to much better video games, that doesn't strike me as a, as a great answer i i'm i am more in favor of maybe the orin cast stuff i haven't looked at it closely enough but of the let's come up with some really grand infrastructure things that put people to work even if the pure economic arguments aren't quite there you know well, because the argument would be what we are currently doing with our welfare system would be less good than that but neither would be perfect right 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 yeah i mean this i, I think i think Again, I lean libertarian, but I, I, my problem with the UBI is I don't think it takes into account where we actually are as a society. Yeah. And I feel the same way about it as I do about open borders arguments. Yes, I would absolutely love to replace most federal programs 
yes, I think they're badly run, wasteful. I think they provide perverse incentives, easy for me to say. Um, But there is... There is not a public willingness, in my estimation, to tell people, you've spent the money we gave you, you don't have any left for your hospital bill, suck it up. Yeah. In the same way as, you know, libertarians will say, well, I'm in favor of open borders and abolishing the welfare state. Well, fine. I think you have to do one before the other. Right. But... You know, it, it was the case a hundred years ago that if you came in through Ellis Island and you couldn't make it, you went home. Right, and they did. I mean, I, I forget the exact number, but but so many Italians, for example, went back. Like fifteen million of people all across the board went home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was because they said, "Well, I can't get a job." Right, and everyone went. Bye. <laughs> or, but, well, some of it was also just like classic guest worker stuff. They worked here for a long time. They made they made the money they needed to make. Right. And then they they liked Italy better. You know, and they right. wanted to go home because right. you had to work too the hard. Pe- here. The pizza was better. Yeah. Well, um, maybe, well, we don't want to start that. But I disagree um, with that profoundly. Uh, but um, you once said that the best pizza you ever had was in South Southern France. So French pizza is phenomenally good. Yes. Yeah. That's correct. Um, but you know, no, we're like, in international waters. I could I could kill you. I couldn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that we are just not prepared as a society to tell people you haven't made it here in America. You therefore have no money. Go away. Right. And I think we're not prepared to say to people, well, sorry, as part of the grand bargain that led to UBI, you were given enough money to pay for food and shelter and healthcare. There is no Medicaid. Right. There is no Obamacare. Uh, there is no welfare provision in the way there once was. You have squandered your chance. Deal with it. We, we won't do that. Right. You'll get another check in three months. You're, well, <laughs> right. We won't do it. And yeah. there will be a built-in constituency against doing it. And uh, I, and so I can't see it working out the way that it is. Well, that's the problem, right? Is to. that the left loves the UBI part. It's sort of like the... It's sort of your point about the libertarians and, and open borders and get rid of the welfare state. The left loves the UBI part, but you know when when Charles is talking about it, it's an either or thing. Exactly. You have the welfare state or the UBI, they want it as a both and. Right. 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 We're going to give everybody a chunk of money, and we're going to keep all of the managerial class in their jobs. Right. You know, meddling with people. Um, I want to switch gears slightly. So, as I mentioned when I had Raihan, our friend Raihan, who we both like a great deal and envy his skincare regimen. Um, he, um, he was on this August podcast and, and I, I confess to him that when I listen to you guys argue on the editors, I almost every single time side with you. My favorite was when, cause Ryan does have this gift for, do you ever see the movie, um, uh, a mighty wind? No. Okay. It's a great, it's a, it's a Christopher Guest movie about folk singers in America. I think you'd okay. like it cause you actually know more about music by far than I do. And there's anyway, there's this great scene where Ed Bagley is bothering this, the director for this big TV special, and it pings with me because I used to be a television producer and I had a boss who would constantly ask for things that we didn't have. Yeah. And anyway, Ed Bagley has this great scene where he says, "You know, it'd be great if we had you know one of those, a crane shot where we just like zoomed in, you know, from above the audience." And the director keeps saying, "Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be great." <laughs> but we don't have one of those, right? <laughs> And, and whenever I listen to you talking to Ryan, Ryan has these incredibly brilliant analyses of what would be great if that was actually what Donald Trump was doing on yeah. trade policy, right? But it's not, you know? And so at one point, 
like the fifth time you had got to go around on one of your podcasts about this, you finally just said, I think we're just, we're just finding faces in clouds here, right? <laughs> um, anyway, so the, the reason I bring it up is, is that, again, I like Ryan a lot, and, I, and he knows public policy stuff, orders of magnitude better than I do. But I basically got him to admit that he is a, I think what I called it is a, is a right-wing Biz, Bismarckian. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it made me think of it when you were talking about the Silicon Valley types who think, oh, we know how to turn the dials just right on the entire economy, the entire society. We can plan from above and all of that kind of stuff. It seems to me that kind of thinking is creeping in more and more on the right. And I'm not saying that all the policies those guys propose are wrong, but it makes me nervous. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's creeping in for a couple of reasons. Uh, it, it is not what Ryan is doing, and I think the other one he is. The, the, the reason number one is as a post hoc justification for Trump. Yeah, and b- Trump is the president. People don't want to criticize him, and so they will say, "Well, it's not a terrible idea when you look at it." Whereas before, the question of whether it was substantively a good idea would have generally taken a backseat to whether the government should be doing it in the first place, or should be empowered to do it in the first place, or should be given tools that will be available to the next president who might not be a Republican or conservative. So I think that that's what a lot of people are doing. But I think I think with with Ryan, and I think there is a split in the conservative movement on this question, and I think that. That Ryhan and and Ross Douthat and and others are on one side of it, and I'm on the other. Yeah, <laughs> um, that you know the the sort of reformacon movement is more interventionist uh, and and wonky than than I am, and mm-hmm. I think that than you are. Yeah, and to Ryhan's credit, it's not as if he's taken this position or approach lately. I mean, that's no, 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 always no. done it. By no means. Um, he wrote a book with Ross on this topic. And I mean, he, he, sees, he sees his approach as being more likely to foster harmony and, and unity. Right. And this will probably sound odd, but I don't want to foster harmony and unity. Right. In fact, I think we have too much unity. Uh, I think we strive for agreement rather than live and let live. Mm-hmm. I think that we have got to a point in our politics at which we are all terrified of the next election because we expect the person who wins it to impose from the top down their conception of the good life right. on the nation. And I think that there's a paradox here in that for perhaps, um, well, the first time in a long time, America is now as intellectually, politically, geographically, religiously diverse as it was about 100 years ago. Charles Murray wrote a great article Mm. on this in Commentary a few years ago, that America is actually not united in the way it was in the 50s and 60s, that there was always the South, which was different, but that in the 50s and 60s you had uh, three TV stations... Um, you had a broadly homogenous culture and you had a government that represented and reflected that with the exception of the South. Mm-hmm. And that was for obvious historical reasons. Now we have a government that is even more like our government in the 50s and 60s, that is even more one size fits all. But you have an explosion of different 
ways of thinking right. and different visions for the future. And it hasn't caught up. It was less of a problem in 1890 because right. the government was very small. Um, and so when I hear Raihan talk, it's not that I don't think he's brilliant because he is. It's not that I don't think he's more knowledgeable than I am because he most definitely is. And it's not that he, he's not well-intentioned because there are a few people who are better intentioned. Right. It's that I think that he is operating from a starting point that is more likely to exacerbate what I see as our big challenge going forward. And that is a resistance to centralization when what we really should be doing is, is devolving power so that people... I mean, we, so we laughed on... I mean, even the people who didn't like Trump laughed when we watched that video from Yale of the hundred students on election night going out into the court and screaming yeah, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. sky. Right. We laughed. It's, it's silly behavior. It, it, is, it is incongruous to watch that from someone at an Ivy League school. But it's actually not funny because what it, what it is saying is those people looked at the next four years and thought, I'm going to be crushed. I mean, that's what they believe. Now, right. some of it is ignorance and silliness. Some of it is the product of a belief that America started in 2008 when Barack Obama's name right. got into the papers. But a lot of it is not actually irrational. Much in the same way, we, we talked earlier about transactional politics, much in the same way as it's not irrational for religious people to look at Donald Trump, you know, an adulterous, multi, multiple times married lech, mm -hmm. and say, he will be my bullock against the other side. And, you know, I, I just... I hear Raihan, and, and it's not even always that I disagree with his prescriptions, but I see his way of doing things as an impediment to what I think it has to be our national project, right. which is dismantling national projects. Because I think the only way you're going to get the, the hipster in Brooklyn and you know, the uh, Baptist in Mississippi to look at the American flag and say, yes, this is my country and I'm so proud of it, is, ironically enough to give them different experiences in America. I agree with this entirely. Yeah. Uh, in, in essentials, unity, and everything else, diversity. Exactly. Right? And essentials needs to be defined as, as, as rationally and as narrowly as possible, like self-defense. Civil rights. Civil rights. That's about it. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, right. Really I mean, not, not education, healthcare, energy, transportation policy. Right. Um, Free speech, self-defense, the, the provisions within the Bill of Rights that have been incorporated, right. and civil rights so that we never again associate state autonomy with Jim Crow or right. with suppression. But other than that... Right. Let your free flags fly. Yeah, there really is no reason why we can't have a different culture in Portland, Oregon, Brooklyn than we do in, right. in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Michael Oakeshott makes this point in, I think, Rationalism and Politics... I figured I'd drop some English philosophers' uh, deference to you, that his definition of being a conservative, there is absolutely nothing inconsistent with being a conservative in politics and being wildly radical about everything else in your life. Right. right? And it used to be understood, like Jack Kerouac, a National Review subscriber, was a pretty wild dude. Yeah. <laughs> but he was also conservative about the things that you're supposed to be conservative about. Sure. And, I, and I, I think that is something that is so utterly lost on people that you have to be... And it's part of this monoculturalization that we have, right? Where you have to you have to sign up for the whole program or none of the program. And if you look at people like, you know, 
Max Boot or Jen Rubin just selling off parts of themselves to be part of the new thing. Yeah. It I find that tendency really dismaying, you know, and and I find myself sort of caught. That's one reason why this podcast is called The Remnant. Between people who want me to be, be on one party line or another party line, and the whole point of being conservative by my lights, by your lights, that's not that's not what it's about, yeah. right? So I don't want to get you in trouble with our fearless leader, but where do you come down on this? Given what you were just saying, and I agree with what you were just saying, where do you come down on the national, the new nationalism push that we are hearing from various places, including? from not only a handsome man, but a powerful man named Rich Lowry. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't say I'm in favor. I, 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 don't, I don't think that you know, anyone who uses the word or makes arguments that are nationalist in nature is, is a fascist, which is the right. sort of argument you hear from the left, that th- th- this is all some dog whistle back to... Hitler. I, right. I, I didn't think that at all. All fascists are nationalists, but not all nationalists are right, fascists. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I mean, I, su- I suppose I've already answered this with my my sort of evaluation of the way Reihan sees politics. Um, right. I mean, the, the basic problem is this one nation politics. What yeah, sneaks in there it. is, is, is it, it has to be a centralizing concept. Yeah, I mean, I oppose it with, with, I suppose, the same caveats as the constitution does which is i think we have to have a single military policy sure, sure, sure. we have to have a single immigration policy and i'm i'm not anywhere near open borders because i think that the i think the government should do very very little to try to determine the nature and behavior of the citizenry within its borders but i think it's entirely reasonable for it to decide who comes in right. but for example when i was on my way to becoming a citizen, which took seven years, yeah. I was asked on a regular basis, are you a communist? Uh-huh. Uh, and in fact, I was asked it at my citizenship interview. And then before you go into the room where they do the ceremony, which was on a different day, I had to relinquish my green card and tell them again that I'm not a communist. Yeah. Now, this That's like going to the NR every single day. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say that, right? Now, this, this didn't bother me in the slightest. Yeah. But if I were asked that internally, right. I would give all of my salary to the ACLU. I mean, right, I, right. I would think that was such an appalling infringement right. on my rights. But there is no reason why we shouldn't have a policy to prohibit communists, fascists, people who have sold children into slavery, right. people who've armed... You know, Al Qaeda. There is no reason people we who think the best pizza in the world is in southern France. Right. Ever exactly. all, all these exactly. really degenerate horrible. Well, people. I lied in the about that in the interview. I, I'm glad but you now did. I can yeah. say it. Yeah. Um, so, insofar as there is any attempt to sculpt the the national character, I think it should be at the border. Right. After that, it makes me very uncomfortable. So. That's probably my, if that's even nationalism, that's my one conception to, to there being a government role to create one nation. Mm. Um, I, do want, I do want immigrants to be expected to abide by the Bill of Rights. I do want them to understand that this is a country with a free market, with uh, individual liberties, with a constitutional order that is expected to be continued. But I don't want it from Congress. Right, right. <laughs> Is that helpful? Yeah, no, 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 that, 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 I, I, look, I agree. That, and again, I don't want to retread, you know, familiar territory for listeners, but it's everything in proportion, you know. And, and I think you're probably more uh, unconcerned with 
maintaining certain deference for a a. I think your leveler, level, levelism, levelerliness, whatever, uh, <laughs> is, leveritis, um, is, um, is greater than mine in the sense, for the reasons I was alluding to earlier, that, you know, you need, all cultures need hierarchies. They're going to have hierarchies. Right. Not, it's not necessarily state enforced. One of the great things about the American experiment is that prior to the American founding, they were all state enforced, right? The merger of church and 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 government and state and throne and all that kind of stuff but even in free societies you need sort of hierarchies and um and so i have no problem respecting some of the you know it does not bother me that we're having a day of mourning for george w bush george hw bush as much as it does you i get your point but in a culture where you need you need certain sort of centralizing icons and myths and this is not a dangerous one to me it's about as an undangerous one. Yeah, no, exactly. Right? You know, if you like, were coming up with the least dangerous icon for a nation, it would be George H. Yeah, you know, particularly at 94 and dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, um, the anti-Sock League protesting. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's... I, I'm more tolerant of the, the, the sort of... of everything in some proportion. So a little nationalism is fine. Too much of it is really a bad thing. My problem with the nationalism stuff is just that when you start, as Raihan does, and as I think Rich is doing, marrying it to a partisan political program, you are making adherence to that flag. You know, that thing you were talking about earlier about having someone in Portland and someone in South Carolina looking at the same flag and having a sense of reverence for it. If it becomes the property of a party or a particular political agenda, you are going to have people naturally having... Disdain and contempt for the flag because they associate it with the other party. And well, and also you can fall into the trap of considering the other party traitors to the flag. That's right. That's right. And and that's a natural thing. Is and as part of this homogenizing, unifying, monolith creating version of politics, it's like capture the flag. The team that has the flag is the enemy, and and the team that doesn't have the flag is traitors. And and they're not going to have a view towards their fellow Americans as anything other than. Partisans, right? Yeah. And that's why you get those jackwads wearing those T-shirts that say, "I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat," which is a very strange thing for nationalists to be doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, anyway, we can we can get off that because it's all familiar territory. Um, I should let listeners know that you know, for years, I think mostly behind his back, I would refer to Charlie as British Shaggy because he looked a lot when he first came. And if you go back and look at those videos of you interviewing the guys in the Occupy Wall Street, you you looked like Shaggy from Scooby Doo. And now I'm very upset because Charlie and his in in now that he's a father and a um, and a yeoman in the Republic of Florida, uh, he has a much better, healthier looking beard than I do. And I can't call him British Shaggy. You call anymore. me British George V. I that? could do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, British Knight Templar. American George V. Now. I guess. <laughs> and yeah, that's right. You're not even British anymore, um, which kind of sucks. Mad Dogs and Englishmen is just an ongoing microaggression against my. Yeah, you're just you're just trolling your former countrymen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, have you noticed how uh, all of a sudden the people who thought George H. W. Bush was a warmonger and a horrible person and a wimp are all of a sudden celebrating him as a wonderful? Summer is basically the kind of person that I kind of always, more or less, thought he was, at least in the last 15 years. Um, Ramesh and I wrote a piece years ago called The Only Good Conservative, or on this point, I don't think we called it that, uh, was 
the only good conservative is a dead conservative because whenever conservative or Republican presidents or famous people die, all of a sudden they're used as a cudgel against the living presidents as, as bad people, right? Where do you think that comes from? Well, firstly, when someone is, is dead, they're not a threat to you anymore. Right. Which is why the left waited until Ted Kennedy died to say, yeah, 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 maybe he does. And it's why they waited for Hillary to lose, to acknowledge that Bill Clinton right. did some terrible things and lied. Um, but I also, I also think, I mean, one of my problems with progressivism, my many problems with progressivism, is that I think it is rudderless and it lacks a North Star. Right. And I think that, I mean, it's there in the name. Right. If, if, you're, if you're trying always to change, you, you get bored if you're asked to stand still. Right. And you know, Jacobin is a strong word, but there is some Jacobinism within modern progressivism. And, in fact, within modern libertarianism, there yeah. is a desire just to change and... and Although I think it comes from a different place. I think, I think libertarians often draw up on a piece of paper what they think the right answer is, and then if there's anything in the way, they're happy to get rid of it. Right. I think progressives like moving for the sake of moving. I think they believe that the, the future is always better and that they have been tasked with getting there. But anyway, I think that that naturally leads them to see whomever is in front of them as a unique problem. Whereas, you know, they look back and they may have won those arguments they may, with presidents who are dead, or even if they didn't win those arguments, even if they um, they didn't win those elections, then it doesn't really matter anymore anyway. Right. It's also the product of a lack of historical understanding, right? I mean, we just myth-make that, well, th- those guys were really reasonable and, and, and the new guys are not. I mean, if you take, um, if you take Eisenhower... If you look at Eisenhower in a particular way, you can see how someone who leans left would say, well, he was a much more reasonable, moderate Republican than Ted Cruz is. Yes, he was more comfortable with unions, although we didn't really have public sector unions in the same way at that point. Yes, he was far more comfortable with taxes. Um, He he wasn't interested in deficit spending. Um, But I think if you put Ted Cruz and Eisenhower in a room and started talking about social policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or any of the stuff that is now at the bleeding edge, you know, trans, right. sexuals. Um, then you, you know, the people who get so upset about this would have to acknowledge that Eisenhower was, was, would have been their enemy. Right. So, I mean, I, spo- I suppose it's, they just use it as a cudgel. Yeah. But, um, but I, I don't know. I, I just... I, I, I think we do have a problem in our politics, actually, and unfortunately, Trump has brought it into the right as well, where we, we just don't really know anything that happened more than about 20 years ago. Yeah. And so it's easy to lionize anyone who was... So, because uh, I agree with all that, and, and I think you know, it's a mixture of nostalgia and, of con- and convincing yourself that the people in front of you right now are the most terrible who have ever existed. Therefore, the people who came before them were better. It's just It seems intuitively right, even though it's kind of nuts. But I wanted to get something you'd said about you know the issues with progressivism you know i'm i've been fighting this lonely battle against american pragmat philosophical pragmatism for a very long time and i think it's been the culprit for a lot of this philosophical pragmatism was on its own terms not the charles pierce or purse however you're supposed to pronounce it stuff but the john dewey and and afterwards stuff was invented as a fake philosophy to destroy competing philosophies of progressivism. 
And it's where you get this argument that says you're the ideological one and I'm just looking at the facts, right? <laughs> I mean, that is its pedigree. That's where it comes from. It is, it is the, like, I don't think the Voxers understand how they are standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to this argument, you know, where, you know, uh, they, they claim that they, they are just looking at the data and they have no ideological axe to grind, but they just end up coming down on the side of progressive positions every single time, mm. right? It's like when Paul Krugman says, facts just have a liberal bias, you know? <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I, I can get in the weeds and all of that, but um, it seems to me, uh, our friend Luke Thompson, he's been making this point for a while on your podcast, the editor's podcast, about how the Democratic side is becoming ideological and the Republican side is becoming coalitional. I, I think that might be right. I'm not 100% convinced, but he's certainly on to something. And that kind of, that freaks me out more than almost anything else that's been going on, right? Because for my entire adult life, the way the left has worked, except for, you know, crazy Marxists and all the rest, was the point was getting power. And they tailored their ideas and their arguments to having power and keeping power. And on the right, it was more ideational, where we said, here are the ten things we believe. If you agree with seven of them, you're sort of one of us, right? Yeah. And I think you can now look at the left and see them becoming much more, I mean, I'll say it in a way that'll trigger some people, but much more principled. You know, I mean, the, the trans agenda, whatever you think of it on the merits, is not a great way to win back the Senate. You know, <laughs> lead with it. Ocasio-Cortez, who I do think is brilliantly trolling people, is not the figurehead you want to take back Indiana or Illinois or any of these kinds of places. And, or maybe Illinois, but not Indiana. And I don't think there are a lot of conservatives on the right who have recognized what is happening. And that the argument for, the whole Trumpian argument, but he fights, right? Or look at the wins, or, or look at the judges, right? That is a coalitional argument. That is an argument that is not based on a unifying principle. It is based on, here's what we're getting out of it. That is how the left viewed politics for most of my life. And now the left is viewing politics, again, with the wrong principles, I think, but as an ideological program, or at least that's what Luke seems to be suggesting, and I think he might be right. Where, where do you come down on all that? Yeah. Um, I mean, you get what I'm saying? I no, mean, I, I, yeah. I, I, I do. I do. Um, I mean, one of the things that really bothered me during the last election was the way the press would say, Hillary has noticed that to raise taxes on people who make less than $250,000 a year is a political loser. And then they would say, Donald Trump has noticed that the reform of our entitlement programs is a loser. Right. And they would say these two things, and then they would leave it there. The implication being what? That that means that the entitlement programs in question w won't go bust because right, right. what they've noticed what people want. <laughs> right, right, right. And... Um, so yeah, politically that matters. I understand. I'm not. They have to win elections. I get it. Um, and you can even make a very cynical argument, not a principal argument. But you can make a very cynical argument. Well, given that Republicans have often run on entitlement reform and lost elections, and then not been able to do entitlement reform, Trump was smart just by saying I'm against it because he's probably not going to get it anyway. But that actually doesn't help anyone. Right. right? I mean, it doesn't help anyone because if 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 the rule here is you can't raise taxes and you can't cut spending and that's what people want well then eventually you're going to run out of money but this 
the Republican side of that equation was actually celebrated by a lot of people who were defending Trump to me. Right. They would say, like the press had, Trump has noticed right, right, right. that that thing that Paul Ryan keeps talking about is a political loser. Right. And If you keep talking about that meteor that is heading towards planet Earth, it's going to wipe out all life, you're not going to win, you know, Peoria. <laughs> right. And so when the press said it, 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 it irked me. But yeah. It doesn't matter, the press is it. But when I started hearing that from Republicans, well, look, he's just got to be a lot more practical than those people like Paul Ryan. It did bother me because, as you say, that is that is a political, it's a coalitional argument. And it's not just that I think that it is wrong, but it's that it is actually divorced from reality. It is subordinating electoral politics. Um, sorry, it is subordinating reality to electoral politics. Right. And one of the reasons I'm a conservative is I won't do that. Right. I'm not doing that. Right. So as you say, if, what, what you sort of want, when it, especially when it comes to this, is more of the approach that has been taken to the trans issue. You right. stand up and say, no, 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 that's what we think. That's what we yeah. think. Except I would argue that the, the running out of money thing is, is guaranteed. And, right. And the, the trans issue is a very ideological, right. you know, it's sort of question-begging, really. Um, so yeah, that does worry me because because it is starting to it's starting to manifest itself within the one group that has historically been very good at saying this isn't true. I mean, th- th- I wrote this in my book that conservatives can be proud of the fact that at various points in American history they have been prepared to be lonely and say this is this is just not true. Right. Gun control, I think, is one of them. Crime, mm-hmm. spending. The lack of originalism within the courts, right. which was a nutty proposition 30, 40 years ago, but now it's not. Um, so, yeah, if they do go down that road, the, the only caveat I have is I'm, and maybe I'm just too optimistic here, but I think that I think that we are assuming that the, the way things are now is the way they will be in 10 years. And I'm not convinced that that is true because I'm not sure that Trump is anything other than an aberration and the the bits that we were talking about earlier that we don't like about the sort of cult of personality and the tendency towards celebrity and the, I do think it's possible that we're entering a period in which both sides rally behind the person in power almost irrespective of what they believe and I think it's possible that the next Republican president will say, actually, I, you know, I yeah. believe in B, not A, and I believe in D, not C. And people will be wearing their next president hats and saying, I've always thought this. Much in the same way as with Obama, you know, it was, it was, of course we don't want single payer. It's just Obamacare. That's all we want. It's the best idea in the world. And then the second he leaves. Um, or that there was this bizarre willingness to acquiesce in a foreign policy and drone strikes that the same people, when George Bush was president, right. thought was the end of the world. So I, I, I'm slightly less worried that it's going to be uh, forever, but I'm but the mechanism by which that would happen is also alarming. Yeah, so I guess what I'm getting at, you know, in the second to most recent issue of NR, I have this piece about fusionism. And one of the points I make is that big, big, big chunks of the conservative intellectual class have decided to become de facto consultants of the Republican Party. And that is how the intellectual class worked 
for the for the Democrats for for most of my life, and I didn't like it that they did that. I mean, the example I always use is uh, Peter Berkowitz came out with this two volume uh, book on varieties of progressivism in America and varieties of conservatism in America, and the conservatives did exactly what dorks like you and I would do, right? They had invited a bunch of essays from different kinds of conservatives. So there was a libertarian and there was a social conservative and there was a religious conservative and there was, you know, whatever. And there was sort of Eisenhower. And they all argued first principles. Here's what we believe. Here's what the proper orientation of government to society and the individual to society is, blah, 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 blah. And I talked to Berkowitz about this. He had this incredibly hard time to get progressives to do the same thing. Instead, the varieties of progressivism were like six different essays from a different perspective about how to win back the White House. And it was all about how, you know, the, the way the coalition is, a, a winning coalition will have to be organized labor at the lead. No, a winning coalition has to be about civil rights. No, a winning coalition. And I hate that. I have no problem for political consultants to argue. Like, Luke Thompson, yeah. go for it. That's your friggin' job, you know? But when one of the things that I think is has been poisonous, and I I didn't see it, in the moment, and I wrote about this recently in GFO, is that conservatives who don't pan them, you know, conservatives now are arguing a lot like that, where you find more and more pieces from sort of principled conservative or libertarian people who are arguing to fit the electorate or to fit Trump's behavior or to fit winning what are supposed to be their actual core convictions. And you, you, what, it's like when you learn a new word, all of a sudden you see it everywhere. Once you sort of have this realization, you start reading op-eds, it, yeah. it bothers me a lot that if that's the direction of where the conservatives right. are going. And, and, then, and then that's compounded by the fact that some of the people, not all of them, I mean, actually your podcast is named The Remnant, as yeah, you yeah. say for a reason, but some <laughs> of the people who have staked out an anti-Trump stand that said, I'm not going to do that, have instead holding fast and just giving their view as they see it, have said to the Washington Post, would you like a 30-part series on why Republicans are evil and Democrats are right about everything? They've gone completely the other direction. It's totally useless. Right. I think the one exception to what you're describing is is judicial philosophy. Uh, If you had commissioned that same Berkowitz book on judicial philosophy, even now, you would have got a bunch of progressive writers who would have just said, here are the things I want. Right. This is what every article by Owen Chemerinsky right. says. If we take the Supreme Court, we should find a right to education, he wrote. Yeah. If we take the Supreme Court, we should overturn Heller. Yeah. That makes me want to and, cut myself. I hate that stuff so much. No, I do too. <laughs> but, but I think the right can be commended here because if you had commissioned those articles for the right volume of the book, they would have said, if we take the... Uh, understanding of words as it was originally we right, will right. come no, to these right. different conclusions which would have these effects on the law and they, they would never have said which will be really great because it, it will invent this right or or arrive at that right you know now sometimes that actually because we live in a stupid culture that sometimes gets very very brilliant people into trouble mm-hmm. because they end up saying well if we were to take this methodological approach brown v board might fall when they're not saying i would want to get rid of brown v board but that is that is just the intellectual honesty flowering and then and then killing them but i I think when it comes to judicial philosophy i think that that's probably the exception to the rule but of course those people aren't 
interested in politics so much anyway. So it's. it's I, I, I agree. You're absolutely right about the intellectuals, and that is. I mean, this is a old point of mine: is that I wish more Trump skeptics or anti-Trumpers or never Trumpers. You know, I, I hate the phrase "never Trump" because it is the way the way certain people use it, but. That broad coalition of Trump skeptics, which includes all different varieties, were the ones that forced Trump to outsource appointing judges to the Federalist Society, mm. right? And so this is so whenever like you know Kavanaugh or, or Gorsuch is announced or, or any of this kind of stuff, you see Sean Hannity going on TV saying this proves what a great constitutionalist Donald Trump is, right? No, it proves that. He is honoring his red line promise to conservatives that we're, he's, we're, he's not going to use his own judgment on judges, right? He's not going to appoint Janine Pirro or, her, or his sister. Yeah. He's going to let Leonard Leo figure out who to appoint. But it is an argument for the transactional It is. It absolutely is. case for Trump. Right. But th- this gets back to my original point. It is one thing to make the transactional argument. It is utterly defensible. We can have arguments about the cost-benefit analysis. But in the public sphere, particularly in the talk radio and Fox News environment, you are not allowed to say, "How ah, we got over another, we got another one by him," or, like, or, or you know, <laughs> the, we, the the slot machine, you know, churned out another good judge. You know, we have to say, "Comrade Trump has produced more wheat east of the Urals than anybody," you know, <laughs> and that he, this proves that he is a champion of the Constitution. You have to praise him. And you have to praise him as if this all springs from, you know, from, like, the, uh, the forehead of Zeus. Well, you also have to pretend that it's not extremely weird to watch Donald Trump talk about the First Amendment and then to watch Donald Trump's judges talk about the First no, Amendment. No, exactly. And realize he put them there. Right. It, it, I mean, look, I, I've, I'm hated by everyone on this because I think that Donald Trump has an appalling view of the First Amendment, which he has expressed over and over again. It's not just his willingness to turn libel into a weapon right. in the way it's used in England. But he wanted the Federal Communications Commission to censor rich. I mean, yeah. back, back, in the, uh, back in the primaries, I mean, it didn't even make sense. Rich was on cable. That's not regulated. But he wanted it to be regulated. Yeah. So he has terrible views. No, he tried to get me fired from Fox and from National yeah, Review. He has <laughs> terrible views on the First Amendment. But, but specifically, he has terrible views on what the law should be. I, if, if someone stands up and says, I'm a First Amendment absolutist, I also don't believe in free speech, I don't really care. Right, I'm going right. to say the First Amendment absolutist. But he has really obnoxious views. But he's actually done nothing. Yeah, yeah no, I agree um, with that. And yeah. he's done a lot less than Obama did. Yeah. But it, it, nevertheless, he doesn't think it's bad views. But he's appointing all of these champions yeah. of, of the constitutional order while he does not share any of those views and as you say we are expected to believe that we should we should take the people he's appointing as a sign of his views rather than the things that he actually says right and conclude that what secretly he's james madison right it doesn't make any sense yeah well it's like with the trade stuff he says everyone whenever you get into a fight about his trade stuff on twitter you know what you'll hear from people is he understands X or Y, right? He knows this is part of a strategy to do whatever. If well, they, are, they make both arguments, right? Because, because the argument th- two months ago was the reason he's using tariffs the way he is is because he wants no tariffs at all. Right. He hates tariffs. He wants free trade. But you don't realize he's, he's exercising American power and you're a cuck. And then 
in the last week, he comes out and says, I love tariffs. All right. I do, I bathe in tariffs when I get home. I have tariffs yeah. all over my wall. I eat tariffs <laughs> in the morning. And people say, no, but tariffs are good. Yeah, no, that's right. Right. <laughs> no, it's... And, but my point is, is that if that's his... Let's just assume whatever the strategy that people are imputing to him is, is true. And that is his strategy. Part of statesmanship is to explain to your own citizenry or your own party that you at least understand the issues. Right. And there is, as far as I can tell, zero evidence that he understands how tariffs work. There's plenty of evidence that he doesn't understand how tariffs work, right? He doesn't understand how trade deficits and and foreign investment are sort of two sides of the same coin. And people say, oh, you don't understand. He's a businessman. He understands stuff better than you. Then why can't he offer a coherent paragraph explaining it ever? I don't believe that Donald Trump knows what tariffs are. Yeah. I don't either. And I think that he thinks the trade deficit is like a budget deficit. Right. I, 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 that's, again, if you say that, people say, oh, well, why are you so smart? Or he's a billionaire. Or he's president. And you're not. Those things are true. Uh, I have never seen any evidence to suggest that he knows what tariffs are or what the trade deficit is. Yeah, and, and you would think if... I mean, here's a bit, I suppose, a difference between us and, and him as well, is if I thought that people thought I didn't know what tariffs were and a trade deficit was, I would subsequently try to make it obvious. That's right. <laughs> Leaving aside the duty to explain to the public what you're doing when you're imposing taxes on them, just for my own pride, right. I, would, I, would find a, I would find a moment... To, to sort of almost farcically say, well, of course, that reminds me of tariffs. Which, you know, <laughs> Let's like, talk about the corn laws. It's, it's like <laughs> sort of, you know, occasionally I, I get this, this absolute shocked response when I start talking about college football or NASCAR or something that I like. And, and I, I overcompensate, right? I mean, right. someone says, you, you like college football. And so what I do, I, what I do is I, I bring up the last, like, 35 games that I watched and, you right. know, recite them all. Um, just, to, just because it annoys me that people think, oh, he can't possibly know anything about that. Um, That's how I am about Bigfoot erotica. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, if I were Trump and, and I had so obviously put my foot in my mouth on this question, I think I would just start talking about it, whatever I was asked, you know. Or just ask a speechwriter, give me two paragraphs that I can say that reconciles this. Yeah, and it, yeah. it would go a long way, you yeah, know. Right. President um, Trump, happy birthday. Well, the thing you have to understand about the trade deficit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, we should. I mean, I, I like doing this. We could go a long ways further. I'm a believer in longer podcasts, but you have to get off the boat and go back to your family. And, I do. Um, I got to go lie down and take more cold medicine. Thank you for doing this. Uh, hopefully, this sounds okay. We're using this very cool looking doohickey. And uh, everybody, thanks for listening. We're going to have, because it was such a hit last week. When Jack read the ad copy, which really wasn't the ad copy, it was just uh, the NR Plus stuff, that since I forgot to read the Donors Trust thing, Jack is going to tell you more, is going to go... The, the earlier pitch you heard about Donors Trust is because I forgot to read it in the middle of the show. Um, and I also don't have any paper with me because we're at sea. So, and since Jack's not here, um, I'm free to say uh, until next time. I'll see you next time. Bye. Okay, well, here I am, Jack Butler, uh, the guy who sometimes is on The Remnant who's not Jonah, (laughs) although that doesn't really distinguish me from any of his guests, Uh, producer of The Remnant, there we go, and Jonah, in in response to the resounding 
feedback of my ad read last week, which, as an aside, I would just like to say the fact that people commented positively on this reminds me of an early episode of SpongeBob. And I, 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 I would reference this anyway, but we should talk about SpongeBob anyway because Steven Hillenburg, the creator of SpongeBob, died last week. And I wrote about this on Ricochet, where I have my own podcast, Young Americans, and because Jonah's not here to stop me, I'm going to f- uh, flog it. Or f- yeah, flog it is the word. Well, that's that's a that's a violent word. Peter would not like me to use that word, <laughs> but I'll promote it. Young Americans, listen to it. But there's an episode of of early an early episode of SpongeBob in which uh, Squidward, the artsy, grumpy neighbor of of, of SpongeBob, organizes this show at the Krusty Krab, the restaurant where they both work, and uh, Squidward, he does, he's like, does this avant-garde interpretive dance that everyone hates, and he calls them all, uh, all reprobates and, and people with poor taste and whatnot, and then storms off the stage, people have already thrown tomatoes at him, so Spongebob then goes onto the stage, Spongebob, whom Squidward did not let go, or perform in the, in the show, in the actual show, but he, he goes onto the stage and starts cleaning up the detritus that the various fish residents of Bikini Bottom have thrown at Squidward, and the crowd kind of quiets down, and they look at it, they're like, hey, hey, this guy's pretty good, and then they start cheering wildly, and Squidward thinks, oh, they won an encore, so Squidward goes back on stage, and then everyone is silent, and then he, get, he fumes off again, SpongeBob comes back on stage, everyone cheers, Squidward realizes what's going on and uh, tries to use it to his advantage at first, and he fails, and then he storms off finally for the last time, and then the episode closes with SpongeBob just, uh, oh yeah, Squidward tries to mop because he thinks that, oh, maybe it's the mopping that they like, and so he takes the mop from SpongeBob and then starts mopping, but they still don't like it. And so, but then SpongeBob comes on stage with a dustpan instead, starts using that, and they cheer for him. And he fumes off, and the episode closes on that note. So that's kind of how I felt last week when I just read an ad after Jonah had done this whole show <laughs> that required actual labor, thought, and whatnot. But you know what? If I'm just giving the people what they like. So here I am again reading the ad for the show. And the, as Jonah mentioned at the very beginning of the show, the sponsor for this week's episode is Donors Trust. Uh, and now is a good time to talk about Donors Trust. I mean, every what isn't a good time to talk about Donors Trust? You should just talk about them wherever you are. Uh, in the drive-thru at McDonald's, um, I, I don't know why that's the first thing I thought of. Uh, when, you're, when, you're, when you see someone on the street jogging, you should roll down your window, even though it's cold in most of the country right now, and just talk to, start talking to them about Donors Trust. Um, Wherever, whatever situation you find yourself in is a good time. But now is an especially good time because the end of the year is when many people start thinking more about their charitable giving. And if they are doing that, Donors Trust, they should remember that Donors Trust is the Community Foundation for Liberty. What does that mean? Well, I ho- I'm, we're not going to define liberty here uh, because there's all sorts of things that go into that. The distinction between negative and positive liberty, the distinction between liberty and license... Uh, so we're just going to focus on donors' trust and not the philosophical abstract meanings of liberty. Uh, although you can listen to past episodes of The Remnant for discussions about that. Uh, so, But what does that mean? Well, you probably have a community foundation near you that focuses on nonprofits supporting the local area. Donors' trust does the same thing, but its mission isn't bound by geography, but instead by principles. 
Donors Trust advances the values you and I care about across the country. And I assume that also means, I mean, that's supposed to be Jonah saying that. I, I think it's fair to say that he also cares about these things. Um, Jonah, yeah, you can, Jonah is not a hack, despite what people on his, uh, on Twitter accuse him of being. He's many things, he's not that. Um, devotee of Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> oh, gosh. But he's not a hack. The value, so the values that you and I and Jonah care about across the country, limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. A donor-advised fund with Donors Trust offers you favorable tax benefits, additional privacy, and a simpler way to manage your charitable giving. Donors Trust plays a critical role helping donors big and small support groups fighting for the values we discuss each week on this show, uh, in between the... Uh, Obscure pop culture references when we get around to discussing values and principles. Uh, Working with Donors Trust will protect your giving from going to places that undermine those principles, and it's just a smarter way to give. Uh, And they have a unique offer this week. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. I guess Donors Trust is Team Dingo. Sorry, Pippa. Uh, Although, get well, Pippa, also. Um, For those of you who don't follow Jonah on on the online so to speak. Pippa has some, she is, she has some malady right now. It's, it's minor they're treating it, but we all, we all need Pippa to be fine so that her butt waggles can continue indefinitely. So anyway, but anyway, go to, uh, Donors Trust has made, has chosen its side. It's pro Dingo, so they've chosen DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. There's nothing wrong with that. Dingo's great. But if you go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo, you can receive a Donors Trust swag bag with all sorts of neat stuff in it. Plus information to help you see if a donor advised fund with donors trust would benefit you. And they're not they don't tell me to do this on this copy that I'm definitely not reading from. Uh, but I have the bag. Or I, I have yeah, I have the bag with me. So let's see what's in here. There is a straw made of metal that says big government sucks on it. <laughs> so if in case you need one of those, and who doesn't? Uh, there's also a a, a sort of bean-shaped case with jelly beans inside. Oh, look at that. What else is in here? Oh, there's a... There was in this bag a pen, but when I was in the studio a few weeks ago, recording or writing down things that I know Jonah would want to be show notes, my pen, the pen I was using, ran out of ink. And when he was... Uh, this was a Donor's Trust episode. I can't remember which episode it was. But I was... I was sort of in a in a bind because I didn't have anything to write stuff down with and then Jonah started showing off the bag uh, in much the same way I did and then I realized there was a pen in there so I took the bag from him after he was done reading the spot and started writing stuff down again it was really convenient so donors trust really came in handy for that specific situation I found myself in at that time and who knows maybe you will be in such a situation as well there's the only, the only way to find out is if you go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo, and if you're one of the first 50 people who sign up at that DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo link and receive one of those swag bags. And once you get one, you may, and you have it with you, you may yourself find your, be in a situation where you have a highly specific need (laughs) that happens to be resolved by one of the items in this swag bag. There is only one way to find out. But even if that doesn't happen... DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo is where you should go because Donors Trust is a good advertiser and we're happy to have them. Well, I'm happy to have, on the, have them on the remnant. I 
Jonah's probably worried uh, in terms of my ego that I just tried to speak on behalf of the podcast. Uh, well, you know what? Then you shouldn't have given me this. Resp- if you were so worried about this power going to my head, then you should have never given it to me in the first place. <laughs> ha! Uh, but anyway, go do it now. One last time, that's DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. And thank you again, Donors Trust, for sponsoring the Remnant podcast. And now that I've rambled, and now now that I've given a sort of, I don't know, I felt like it was a more forced performance now that I'm aware that people enjoy, or some weird people enjoy this way I deliver these these ads, uh, I hope it, it, I hope the, auth- the lack of authenticity was made up for in the, uh, in the surplus of, of vigor or something, I don't know. But that's all for the remnant. Um, I had no connection to the. I was not on the cruise uh, with with uh, the actual stars of this episode. But I enjoyed the episode. It was good. Uh, Charles Cook has a great, great accent. Man, I'd love to have an accent. Uh, oh well. Oh well. Can't have everything, but you can have the remnant, and we will not. See you next time because this is a podcast, Jonah. You you thought that I you thought that you could get away with that, but again, you gave me the ability to have the last word, so you should have seen this coming. But anyway, thanks. Bye. <laughs>